As we go into the 70 weeks, if you're like, my head is spinning, and this is weird, don't worry, you're not alone. There's not a scholar who's perfectly confident, and those who are perfectly confident aren't really scholars, okay? Because they have thrown scholarship out the window and ignored all the problems with each view and become like, this is it. And that's not scholarly, okay? That's just obsession. And if you are that person, I apologize. I don't mean any offense by that. But if you really are honest with what's going on here and honest with very intelligent people throughout the thousands of years of history that are trying to figure this out, it's very hard to be absolutely confident that you have the right answer. If your head's spinning, you're not alone. Two, if your head's spinning, don't worry because the main point has already been dealt with. Okay, the main point is that God is saying that there is now a more limited time than there ever has been before that now the atonement of sin is going to be finally accomplished. And in hindsight, even if the numbers don't totally make sense between the Gospels and now the book of Revelation, which doesn't totally make sense, but it's obvious there is a second coming of Christ that's coming where all evil is going to be eliminated, literally, we now have enough between those two things that whatever we don't understand the 70 weeks is not going to threaten our understanding of the first and second coming of Christ in any kind of a way. So this is more to understand how amazing God is, that he was so detailed and so precise, rather than I had to figure this out or somehow this isn't going to work for me in my salvation or what God is doing. And this is not the only thing we have anymore like Daniel had. Does that make sense? So don't worry. Now we're just finding the beauty in God's knowledge rather than stressing over and obsessing over the answer. And if you get obsessive, then let that be a warning to you that you need to back off and just rest in Christ and know that there's plenty of other prophecies that strengthen our salvation in the second coming of Jesus Christ. And thank God that you're not Daniel, where you're going to walk away from this and be so depressed and sick that you're going to miss work for a week because you can't figure it out. Okay, don't go that far. So, or does that make sense? Don't worry about it. And you're not dumb if you don't get it. Let's break it down. There are three sections. These are in the notes. These are in the notes on page 37 in the middle under the bold title, chapter 9, verses 25 through 27. There's a total of 490 years. The 70 weeks is divided into three distinct time periods. The first time period is seven weeks. So seven times seven is 49. The second time period is 62 weeks. So 62 times seven is is 434. And the final time period is one week, which is seven. Those are the three distinct time periods. What God is saying is that something's going to happen in this first 49 years, something's going to happen in the next 434 years, and something's going to happen in the final seven years. So what's going to happen in the first 49 years? The first begins with a decree to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and ends with the arrival of anointed ruler whose task is to carry out the decree. Two things I want to point out in this 49 weeks. First, a decree is given to rebuild the city. The question is the decree and the starting of the rebuilding of the city at the same moment. 
or does the decree come and then the actual rebuilding of the city comes much later? That's the idea. But there's a decree that the city shall be rebuilt. Some people take them as one event and some people take them as two different events. It is possible to give a decree and it's not fulfilled until much later. If you don't think that's possible, then go back and think about the times that you told your kids to do something. And it happened much later. The other thing is that the ruler is specifically called anointed and ruler. He's anointed and ruled. That's important because the, there's going to be another ruler or another anointed, and it's not mentioned both. This is the place where he's anointed and ruler, which means he's a ruler and he's anointed. Anointed means you're chosen by God. And you're going to be used by God for a very specific righteous task. And he's going to be the one who fulfills the decree to rebuild the temple. Those are the two things that you need to know about this. The first is the decree to rebuild the temple. Are they separate or the same? And the second, that he's specifically called ruler and anointed, and that he's responsible for the rebuilding of the temple and making it happen. The second period, which is the 434 years, is a time during which the city is rebuilt and after which the anointed one, who is not called a ruler, will be cut off. And Jerusalem is destroyed by the people or by an army of a ruler who is to come. And war will continue through the rest of the period. So what do you need to know about this? This 434 years is the time that the city is being rebuilt. The city does not get rebuilt in a day. And it's happening over a long period of time. At the end of the rebuilding of the city, the anointed one, he is not called a ruler. So the first ruler anointed one is the idea of king and chosen by God. The second one is just chosen by God, but he's not necessarily a king. He's not a ruler. He will be cut off. That word cut off usually refers to death. Usually refers to death or an ending of an office and a sacking of an office. Then, as a result of that, Jerusalem is destroyed by either the people or the army of a ruler that is yet to come. A ruler that is yet to come. Not the ruler that's already been mentioned, but another ruler that is yet to come. And then war will be a part of this time period. So this time period is a destructive time period. The first time period is, hey, let's rebuild the city. This city's going to be rebuilt. Everything seems positive. The second time period is destruction. An anointed one will be cut off by um, God. Will uh, one that God has chosen will die, and then a war will break out, and the city will be destroyed, and things will not be good. Those are the main things you know about that period. The third period, the one week or the seven years, begins with an unidentified person, presumably the ruler who is yet is to come, ratifying a covenant with many which will bring an end to war, but then he desecrates the temple and ends all sacrifices being before meeting his demise. So the third group is another ruler that comes, and he makes peace with Jerusalem, but then violates that peace treaty and destroys the temple and desecrates the religion. So the text clearly points to three different rulers. The anointed ruler who's responsible for the rebuilding of the city, group one, or period one. The second period is an anointed one who is not a ruler, who will be cut off, and that will begin a time period of war and destruction. 
And then the third period, there's an unidentified ruler who's not called anointed, and he will make a treaty, violate it, and desecrate the temple in Jerusalem. Those are the three main things. How do we understand this then? There is a major textual issue on how one should translate Daniel 9 through 9.25. By textual issue, I mean the grammatical structure in the Hebrew is not agreed on by scholars of how to translate this. So this is what makes it really difficult. There is a structure in the Hebrew grammatically that is very difficult to translate and that Hebrew scholars don't really agree on how to translate it. So if you don't know Hebrew, it's going to be very confusing. And your translations usually pick one way or the other. So you can't go by your translations because the NIV takes one view and it reads one way, and then the NET or the NASV takes another view and it reads completely different. And they're both, well, they're both grammatically legitimate, but they're also based on a misunderstanding of the grammar because we just don't get how it's being used. What is the issue? The traditional translation, there are two different views. There's the traditional view and the Antiochus or the Greek view translation. The traditional translation, and if you've ever like done Tim LaHaye left behind or kind of stuff, that's the traditional view. If you've ever had anybody in your church who's a staunch, futuristic, literal seven-day tribulation kind of a person, and I'm not saying that's a bad or anything, I'm just saying if they fit in that camp, they take the traditional view. This has probably been the most common view taught in the pew, so to speak, view. A traditional translation is based on a manuscript called Theta. This is a manuscript from a, um, it's a Theodosian, a Jewish proselyte from Asia Minor, translated the Hebrew into the Greek. We have all these different manuscripts of the Hebrew and the Greek. And what scholars have done, they've like labeled them or given them symbols or giving them numbers. Or sometimes they number them like Q24 because it was found in the cave 24 Quran. And so that makes it learning these stuff really fun too because they all have random like cataloging numbers. But this manuscript was translated by Theodosian, a Jewish scholar, translated from Hebrew to Greek. And this translation came about much, much later. It was in 180 AD. So this is a Greek translation of the book of Daniel, which was written around the 500s or so, written in 180 AD. So this guy is very far away from understanding the original Hebrew too. And he wrote it, and his view, he interpreted, translated the grammar in a certain way, and it sounded really cool to a lot of people, and it fit really nice into their understanding, and it became super popular. However, everything about this manuscript, it is not considered one of the most accurate manuscripts. It was translated hundreds of years later. There are a lot of things. There are a lot of things in this manuscript that have given us a really good understanding of the Bible. But it's not considered the most uh, authoritative, accurate one that you go to in it, in a, a, it trumps all other views kind of stuff. It's a very beneficial translation for understanding the Hebrew, but it is not the most reliable, most authoritative translation either. It reads like this. 
from the issue of the decree to rebuild Jerusalem until an anointed one, a ruler, arrives, there will be a period of seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be rebuilt with a square and a trench, but in distressing times. This reading makes it sound like that the anointed one of Daniel 25 and of Daniel 26 are the same person, that he will come until the end of the 69 weeks. So this reads the second and third period as being one period. So what you have is the 62 being combined with the 7 as one period. Because what it says is there will be 62 and 7, and the ruler from the 62 and the ruler from the 1 week is the same ruler. Now there's a big problem with this view. If this is the same ruler and nothing significant happens between 62 and one week, then why even divide them? That's like saying, so seven days went by, and then one more day, and then I went and got my driver's license. And you would be like, why did you say it that way? Why don't you just say eight days went by, and then you got your driver's license? What it reads is, there were 49 years, and this is happening, and then there were 62 years, and then there was a seventh year, or one year, and then this all happened. And it's the same ruler. Th that's confusing. Why would God distinctly break it down into three different periods, and nothing significant happens between the second and third period, and it's the same ruler? This is a real weakness here, because it comes from a, a minor translation. It only shows up at one. And it doesn't do justice to the second and third period being divided in half. So that brings us to the Masoretic text. If you've done any kind of like reading of commentaries or that kind of stuff ever, you know the Masoretic text is a very common text. Um, if you take Hebrew in any kind of way, they will hand you a Masoretic text. This is the most common text. It is considered one of the most authoritative and one of the most accurate. Now, little warning. It is not always considered the most accurate. And there are other times that other translations like the Septuagint or other manuscripts actually are determined by scholars to be way more accurate than the Masoretic rendering. However, the Masoretic text is one of the most authoritative in the sense that it has one of the most accurate understandings here. When you put this up against the Theodosian one, the Theodosian one doesn't bear a lot of weight against the Masoretic text. And this reads on the board, or at the very, very, very bottom of page 37, from the issuing of the decree to rebuild Jerusalem until an anointed one, a ruler, arrives, and there will be a period of seven weeks. Then during the 72 weeks, a square, a trench, will be rebuilt, but in distressing times. This reading sees the anointed people as separate people since they are separated by 62 weeks. This sees as three distinct time periods and the ruler of the second and the ruler of the third are distinct rulers. And in my opinion, in many scholars' opinion, that seems to make more sense. It's more logical. It just doesn't feel logical for a time period to be divided and nothing significant happens between them. Yet it feels more logical for the time period to be divided and something is actually happening between them. The first problem with the first view, the traditional view, is it doesn't make sense for this time period to divide into two periods and yet nothing happens. 
The second problem is that Daniel 9 verse 26 begins by saying after the 62 weeks. Why go back and mention what was happening? Why would I say that for seven days and then after the seven days, I had another day and then I got my driver's license? So not only does it not make sense to divide that period into two distinct periods and nothing happens between them, but it also would not make sense for me to say after that and nothing happened. Finally, the Masoretic text is a much older translation and it seems to be more reliable. Now the Masoretic text all by itself is not a several bullet argument against the traditional view. It has a great weight and it carries a lot of weight against the traditional view. However, by itself, one cannot confidently 100% say this. But when you put it with the logical language of dividing the period and saying after, all three of those things together just bears some great weight against the traditional view. But why do people take the traditional view? Because it fits really neatly into a figuring it all out. It feels more neat when you go that route. But neatness is not always the right answer. The first view is a traditional view. One of the reasons they like this view is because it makes it clear that Jesus is the anointed one and he's cut off. And we really like to see the fact that the anointed one and cut off seems to fit very neatly with Jesus. First view takes that view because it allows you to put Jesus as the same one. So if you have the 62 weeks and then seven, then the anointed ruler of the second period is also the same anointed ruler of the seventh, the third period, which means he's coming at the end of it all. And they can easily be Jesus. If you take the anointed ruler of the second period to be different than the anointed ruler of the third period, then that means that there's hundreds of years between them, and Jesus wasn't alive for hundreds of years. Therefore, it doesn't fit neatly into Jesus Christ, which means the anointed ruler that's cut off has to be somebody other than Jesus that came hundreds of years before Jesus came along. And that doesn't feel right because you're like, wait a minute, there's another anointed one that gets cut off? Is that right? And we don't like that. And it gets confusing and cloudy. Should I say it again? So, one of the reasons the traditional view likes the Theodosian translation, where the anointed ruler of the second period is the same as the anointed ruler of this first period, is because if nothing significant happens between the 62 weeks and the seventh weeks, and it's all blended together, then the anointed ruler that's cut off in the middle of the 62 weeks is the same anointed ruler at the seventh week period, which means that easily can be Jesus Christ. And then it easily fits in this idea of him dying on the cross and coming for our sins. And so that fits very nicely into our Christian theology that everything should be about Jesus. But if you take the anointed ruler in the middle of the second period to be a different anointed ruler in this third period, and there's a there's significant things that happen between these two periods, then it can't be Jesus. Because what you have is an anointed ruler in the middle of the 434 years, and then two, three hundred years later, another ruler comes along, and Jesus wasn't alive for two or three hundred years, which means it can't be the Jesus who's being cut off. And then it's not neat anymore. 
And then all of a sudden you have to figure out who's that other Messiah who's cut off that's not Jesus. And what is it that's so significant about him being cut off that he's mentioned in this prophecy, yet it's not so significant that he's not a Jesus Christ-like figure who dies for our sins. And then it's like we don't like that. It becomes uncomfortable. It becomes confusing. And it's not so neat anymore. And so that's why many people take the Theodosian view not because it's the most accurate and makes the most sense grammatically, but because it's the neatest in our Christology theology. And we really like making everything about Jesus all the time, right? So when we talk about Isaiah's prophecy of the Emmanuel who will come, and we're like, Jesus! And then you read the context, and you're like, wait a minute, that doesn't fit. Because that means the, the Emmanuel is coming before the Assyrians come. And, but we don't like to hear that view because we're like, but that's not neat. And that's not like, that's not about Jesus. Everything points to Jesus. And though I agree that everything points to Jesus, that doesn't mean literally everything points to Jesus. Balaam's donkey that he rides does not point to Jesus. Okay, so it doesn't mean literally everything. And so that's the main reason that people take the traditional view, even though it seems to be the least accurate grammatically and from the most reliable text. So does that make sense? The other thing is, if you take the decree to rebuild the city, that's the beginning of this 490-week clock ticking. What is that then? When does that begin? So there are multiple views. The first view, when the clock begins to tick, so to speak, down to 490, is that Cyrus II's decree in 538 BC to rebuild the temple. He gives a decree a year later. In 539, he let all the Jews return. And in 538, he gave a decree to rebuild the temple. That's the first thing. The second view is that the clock began to tick at Darius I's decree in 512 BC to rebuild the temple. However, decree Darius I is not actually giving a decree to rebuild the temple. He's giving a decree to, re to pick back up and continue the temple. The Jews had stopped rebuilding the temple, and the people around them were like, hey, stop the Jews. They're building an anti-you temple. And Darius looks into it and finds that Cyrus gave them permission and says, reissues the decree and says, keep going. So that's not exactly the beginning of rebuilding the temple. The third was Artaxerxes' decree in 457 BC to return and take the treasures to the temple. However, that's a decree, but it really has nothing to do with the temple. It's just returning things to the temple. The fourth one is Artaxerxes' the first decree in 444 BC, the authorizing of Nehemiah to rebuild Jerusalem and its walls. Only the fourth one has anything to do with rebuilding of the city. Cyrus's decree is to return back to the land. The second decree is to, re to, sorry, to re rebuild the temple. That doesn't have to do with the city of Jerusalem although it can be implied. Darius' decree is to rebuild, continue building the temple. That doesn't have to do with the city. Xerxes' decree has to do with just going back. It's only the fourth one. In 444 BC, he gave a decree to actually build the city walls. However, that's not really about rebuilding the city. That's about the walls. Therefore, if you put 490 years later after that, that doesn't fit up. It ends in 40 A.D. with Jesus dying on the cross. The problem is he didn't die on the cross in 40 A.D. Now remember, you have to leave this. this you have to you have to count year zero. 
because we all count down to one and then you hit zero and you have to go from zero to one. So if you're counting year zero, that's 40 AD. And Christ was crucified in 33 AD. These people take everything very literal and that doesn't match up. We're off by seven years. So some people tried to fix this and say, oh, but they were on a 365-day calendar. And therefore, if you do this and do this and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, you get perfectly to 33 AD. The problem is no one really used the 360-day calendar. That had not been used for thousands of years. And even back then, it wasn't very common. And so you're just now just reaching like these obscure things. And then they'll take like this lunar month here and the lunar month there and that kind of stuff. And it's like, wow, we have to really do a lot of mathematical and calendar gymnastics to get to this 33 AD. Even when like people who really enjoy mathematics are reading this stuff, they're just like, what? And it's a very complicated thing. It's like doing your taxes by hand and having mutual funds and houses and property. It's just like, what? There's a huge problem there with this. Then what you have is there's a ruler that has to come right after Jesus, immediately after him. And so that can only be Titus. Because that happens, it has to be Titus because he came. But the problem is he came in 79 A.D. He was an emperor in 79 A.D. to 81, and he destroyed the temple in 70 A.D. That's not seven years later, after 33 A.D. That's decades later. So that doesn't fit. So they're trying to be super literal, but in their literalness, there's no precise dating that works here for that final anointed ruler. Likewise, there's been no mention of Titus anywhere in Daniel's prophecies. So then some people said, oh, okay, there's a comma between the 62 and the 7. So then there's this gap period, and it's actually the Antichrist that comes later, thousands and thousands of years later. Now you're like, okay, now we're just really, literally reading between the lines and literally putting a comma between words. And remember, there's no commas in the original Hebrew. So all this doesn't seem to work. The second view is the Antiochus view. They read the text according to the second translation, as discussed above, when anointed ruler of Daniel 25 and the anointed ruler of 26 are two different people. They take the decree to rebuild the temple as the coming as coming from Yahweh. Yahweh gave the decree to rebuild the temple. And this goes back to passages in Jeremiah 30:18, where God says, I decree to rebuild the temple. And so the decree, because it makes sense, the decree is given to rebuild the temple and then the anointed ruler makes it happen. It seems like the decree and the anointed ruler are different and there's actually a gap between them. And so God gives the decree to rebuild the temple in Jeremiah 30, 18, and that's when the decree is given. The clock begins to tick at that point, which is somewhere between 597 and 586 B.C., Then, seven weeks later, 49 years later, sometime between 548 B.C. and 539 B.C., Cyrus gives the decree to actually let the Jews go back. And that begins the fulfilling of the decree. So then they would take the decree as Yahweh and the anointed ruler as Cyrus II. That fits with the prophecies. 
See, one of the things that's really important to taking a view is see how it's talked about rest of the time in the Bible. There's no mention to any of this stuff anywhere else in the Bible. Yet, Cyrus is literally called the anointed ruler all throughout Isaiah as God using him to bring the Jews back and rebuild the city. So when God is giving a decree to rebuild a city in Jeremiah, at the same time Isaiah is saying the anointed ruler is Cyrus II, who will let the Jews go back and rebuild the city, that seems right there the other two prophets have told you who the anointed ruler is. And it fits perfectly into that. And so the decree is Yahweh, and the anointed ruler is Cyrus II. Then you have 62 weeks later, after this, this would be 434 years later, would be 114 to 105 BC, which would be during the reigns of the Jewish rulers over Jerusalem, Aristobulus I and Alexander Janus. However, these rulers are not significant and they're not mentioned anywhere in the book of Daniel. So then the question is, what's happening at the end of the 62 weeks? Because these rulers are never mentioned. This would place the final week of seven years around 107 to 98 BC and nothing significant happened there. No matter what view you take, the whole dating is messed up. This is why most people who take the second view take a symbolic view. And they don't believe that you're actually getting the precise dates, you're getting the time periods. So why 49 then? 49 is the year of Jubilee. 49 is the year that all, uh, there's sabbatical years. Now remember the reason they had to be in exile for 70 years is because they were supposed to let the land rest every seventh year and let all slaves go free. They never did that. So God said you had to go in exile for every sabbatical year that you didn't do. And that ends up being 70 years because they were 490 years total that they never did the sabbatical years. So divide that by seven and that gives you 70. So the 70 is obviously tied to the sabbatical year. So it makes sense that the 490 would be tied to the sabbatical year as well. And so the sabbatical year is 49. 49 is the seven years. It's multiple of seven. So 49 is the seventh sabbatical year. They were supposed to cancel. They were supposed to let all slaves go free, let the land rest. And then in the 50th year was the year of Jubilee. And they were let the land rest another year, let all slaves go free, and cancel all debts. That fits with Cyrus letting them go back. Because Cyrus will let them go back, and the Bible even hints to Cyrus letting them go back as a year of jubilee. Because all debts are being canceled, the judgment of God is over with, and they no longer have to pay the debt for their sins because it's been fulfilled. They're going back, their slaves have been set free because they're no longer in captivity, and they are going back, and they're allowed to go back to the land and replant everything because the land is rested. It may not be a literal 49 years, but symbolically of a year of jubilee. And that 49 and 50th year were considered jubilee because they went back to back in that kind of a sense. So then what would happen at the 69th week? Well, 69 is one less of completion. And anytime you have a number one less of completion, like six is one less of seven, that's why the mark of man is 666, because we are an incomplete in our salvation, seems to point to that. So in the 69th week, salvation is not complete yet because it's not all complete until the 70th year. And that's when it becomes all complete and righteousness reigns. And so this seems to be symbolic. So then who is the anointed one who is not a ruler? It's probably Onias III. Onias III was a high priest. And when Onias III came into power, he was a high priest in the line of, um, of Aaron. 
And he got, Antiochus IV came along and started selling the priesthood to the highest bidder. Onias got sacked as high priest and it went to his brother Jonathan who bought it for money. And then eventually Melanus, who was not a Levite, bought the high priesthood. And then he assassinated Ananias III. You're like, I've never heard of these names. These are not significant. But think about it as a Jewish person. The priests have always, always been Levites in the line of Aaron. Onias was in 171 BC. This is not literally 62 weeks later, but it's around 62 weeks later. In 171 BC, a high priest has always been a Levite. And it's always been you were the next son became the priest because God chose Aaron. And God said the sons of Aaron become priests. So all the priests are anointed by God. Then all of a sudden you have Jonathan coming along and he buys it. That is not at all what God wanted. It's the first time the priesthood was sold to somebody not chosen by God. And then Melanus comes along and buys it. And he's not a Levite. He's a Jew, but he's from the tribe of Benjamin. And he buys it and then he kills the anointed one, Onias III, the rightful high priest. As a Jew, that would be horrific. That would be worse than Jesus Christ on the cross because for them, Jesus was a false teacher. But your high priesthood being sold to the highest bidder and going to a non-Levite and then that non-Levite killing the rightful anointed one would be a horrific. In fact, it was so bad, it set off a rebellion of the Jews. That and Antiochus IV persecuting them were the two things that set off the biggest Jewish rebellion that has ever been seen that leads to the biggest Jewish holiday ever called Hanukkah. And so if you don't think Onias III being killed is significant, then just go to Hanukkah and look at how it's been celebrated over the years. That was one of the two triggers. So then the next anointed leader would be one seven years later, which would be in 164 BC, not exactly seven years later, but close by one year, and that would be Antiochus IV. And remember the third time period says he would desecrate the temple and cause war. That's exactly what Antiochus IV did. Now think about it. For the Jews, this we keep talking about this over and over again. Every single vision that we keep seeing keeps ending with Antiochus IV and his horrible desecration of the temple. Never in the history of mankind has a temple been desecrated. Never in the history of mankind has a high priest been sold and assassinated by a non-Levitical person. That's been recorded. These two things triggered the greatest Jewish rebellion that had ever existed up to that time period and brought in the greatest persecution that they'd ever seen. And notice it says even halfway through the seven years. That's three and a half years or three and ten days of Antiochus IV. So the anointed one, the anointed ruler of the first period is Cyrus II who brings good things. Then the anointed ruler of the second period, the one that gets cut off, is Ananias III, who sparks the rebellion of the Jews. And the next anointed ruler of the third time period is Antiochus IV, who sparks the other spark for the Jewish rebellion. And both of these things bring desecration to the priesthood, desecration to the sacrifices, desecration to the temple, in exactly the way that God described it. 
And all this seems to fit much better with not only what is happening here, but also the historical context of Jewish history, what's important to them, not to us. Remember, Daniel's a Jew writing to Jews. We need to interpret it as a Jew. And it also fits with every other vision in Daniel. And so once again, this vision ends with not the Romans, but it ends with the Greeks. And you're like, wait a minute. But it would be 164 years later before Jesus came along. Well, yeah, because this is all symbolic. And the grand scheme of thousands and thousands of years, 164 years is not that long. Okay, that's two lifetimes. And remember, the Jews have been waiting for thousands of years for this to happen. So that's feel very close. And remember, it also said the rock would come at the end of the fourth metal. And the Son of Man would come at the end of the fourth beast. This seems to fit with the rock coming after the Greek Empire, the Son of Man coming after the Greek Empire, the cross coming after the, the completion of sin, and the internal righteousness coming after the end of the Greek Empire. Everything keeps falling in place if you allow the prophets to interpret these time periods and you allow the rest of Daniel's context to fit into these things. But ultimately what God is saying here is physical exile would not be the end of the exile. The exile is going to last much longer. And so what God is doing is preparing them for this. So I think this is a better way to understand it just because it fits in. Remember the main point that God is making is he's clearly preparing the Jews for a catastrophe that is yet to come, that he's seen, therefore they should not lose their hope in God, because he already knew this was coming, and the 70th week says there will be an end to it. You might wonder after three and a half years of being under Antiochus IV, is there ever going to be an end? And yes, there will. The other point is that spiritual exile is much longer than physical exile. And it's not going to be until the cross comes. The other thing for us as Christians is that we helps us understand that all this is stages. Because when they thought the exile from the land is going to be the end of sin, and it didn't end up being that, then they had to wait for the cross, but that was the end of spiritual exile, but we're still waiting for the second coming of Christ, then it starts letting us know that God working in stages is not an uncommon thing. When you're like, wait a minute, why is God waiting so long between periods? Because this is what he does a lot. This is what he does a lot. And so it encourages us that if there are time periods between this, and you don't have to do gaps, and you don't have to do commas, it just is the way he works, then it encourages us that we can wait. We can wait. And if God was faithful to bring an end to Antiochus IV, he'll bring an end to all the other Antichrists that have come along. 